All right. Well, good morning, Three Circle Church. We have all of our campuses joining us right now. It's a very special day. We're going to continue our series today called Thriving in Babylon. You know, we kicked off this series just three or four weeks ago where we said, hey, we're all waking up in our own version of Babylon, a world we don't recognize anymore. And what do we do? when we wake up in a world like this. And well, the good news is the Bible tells us what to do. And in fact, we also recommended a book as we kicked off the series. The series is called Thriving in Babylon, but the book that we're kind of basing the series off of is also called Thriving in Babylon, written by our good friend, Larry Osborne. Larry is an incredible pastor and leader and uh, has been a best-selling author. This is my favorite book of the ones that he's written. I like them all, but this one's my favorite. And so he wrote a great book about this whole issue issue. And the good news is he's here today to preach for us. So Larry, best-selling author, mentor to me and many others across the country, an incredible leader is here today. So if you would welcome to the stage, our good friend, pastor and author, Larry Osborne. For, uh, Nearly 40 years, I've had the privilege of ministering near a place called Camp Pendleton. And uh, every Marine I know has stories to tell about this thing called boot camp. It's where drill instructors break them to make them. And uh, contrary to what most people think, it's not a statistic, uh, uh, sadistic, not statistic, it's not a sadistic experience. It's a survival experience. It's not designed to weed people out. It's designed to strengthen them for what they are going to have in front of them to turn a recruit into a Marine. And actually, a very small number of people uh, cannot make it through. And after 13 rigorous weeks of training, they have learned an incredible amount of things. They've learned drills and things they need to do. They've, they've discovered there is strength and endurance they never knew they had within them. Uh, they walk out stronger. They walk out just really ready to move from being a recruit to being a Marine. But there's one thing that's more important than anything else that they've learned during this process, and it is this. The importance of following the chain of command. You see, because when you're out in battle... You don't have time to question, to hesitate, or whatever it is when a command is given. And, and, and that is why uh, during basic training or boot camp or whatever it would be, there's all these weird little things. If you've never gone through it, you've been maybe uh, heard about or told about where like this is so arbitrary. This is so ridiculous. And part of what they're trying to do is to help them understand it's not up to you to decide whether this makes sense. It's up to you to carry out that command, because if you don't, victory and survival will not be ours and yours. Well, it's much the same in the spiritual life. God sends us through sometimes a boot camp to prepare us for what we need to be and we need to know before we go into the battle. And would you agree with me that we are living in a day and an age of spiritual battle that is at, at, in, in some ways getting more and more hostile? And that's where Daniel comes in. The guy who didn't just survive in Babylon, but the guy who was able to thrive in Babylon. And I want you to understand how evil Babylon uh, was. It is the most evil, damnable, godless, demonized 
uh, nation that has ever existed. How do I know that? Well, because we're told in the book of Revelation, when the angels find out that Jesus is about to return, they cry out, fallen, fallen is Babylon. They're chest bumping, high-fiving each other. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And yet Babylon doesn't exist now and will never exist again. God used it temporarily to discipline the, uh, Judah and, and Jerusalem. And then he said, when I was done with them, their wickedness is gonna be taken care of and it will never be rebuilt. The modern day Babylon is not in the same place. It's not there. And so it's been at least 3,000 years and it could be who knows how much longer till Jesus returns. And still the angels don't say, oh man, that's Nazi Germany-like. That's uh, Sodom and Gomorrah-like. That's a fill in other things. They just go, that's Babylon. That's Babylon. And Daniel, what an unlikely guy. About 16, 17 years old, he and a number of other young nobles and the, some beautiful gals were captured and taken 900 miles away to Babylon where the women went into the harem and the young men were going to, for three years, be trained in astrology and the occult and then told that they had to enter the service of Nebuchadnezzar, the king who had besieged their city, conquered it, captured them, castrated the men, by the way, on the way there, and had, had raided the true temple of God and taken things devoted to God all the way back to the uh, temple of his demon god, Baal, and put him in there to mock God. And Daniel now has to go through all of this. He's supposed to serve this guy when it's all done? You, it's not exactly the story that you would think at that point is going to become somebody who's a hero, but he does. Seventy years later, after going through all of this, he writes his autobiography, and it is so filled with spiritual wisdom and insight that God says, save this one. You know, what we call our Bible is actually not a book. It's a library of 66 books. And until Gutenberg came along, you, what you thought of it as a library with a bunch of scrolls in it, and now we call it a book because thanks to Gutenberg, we can put it all together. In fact, now, thanks to Jobs, we can put it on our phone, right? But it's actually 66 books. And God said, this one is worth saving because there are lessons for all time. And they're not Sunday school lessons of adventure, as I thought when I was a little kid. Uh, Daniel is a primer for adults of how we can survive in our own Babylon. And, and, and Babylon, we, we all face different Babylons. There can be Babylons in my workplace. There can be Babylons in my extended or my, my, my close family. Um, um, it can be uh, the community we're in. It can be the nation we're in. Places where it is very difficult to live the life that God has called us to live, and there's a hostility towards it. But that's what warfare is all about, is it not? Being near Camp Pendleton, there's a thing called special ops. They don't spend special, send special ops guys and gals you know, to be in parades. They drop them behind enemy lines, well-trained for a very important assignment. And every one of us here today, we are not here by accident. We are not here in this place. We are not here in this time. We have been placed here, every single one of us, with an assignment from God to represent him well. But to do it, we have to kind of go through our own boot camp. And, and when you take a look at Daniel's life, there were some very important things that made him special. I, I call them the five traits that set him apart. And I want to look at them very quickly. A few of them you've uh, uh, looked at uh, already, a couple you'll look back in a few weeks, but they'll give us a context. Then we're going to circle back and look at the most important one. 
But among the five traits that said Daniel part, uh, one was obedience. Obedience. Like those Marines that have to learn the chain of command, Daniel understood that with God. That when God says jump, the question is not why or are you sure. When God says jump, the only answer that's appropriate is how high on the way up. And when you look at Daniel's life, that's what you see. When it came to a kosher diet, when it came to uh, a fiery furnace and told to bow down before idols, when it was, he was told you can't pray anymore, he didn't question what was up. He drew a line right there and said, I'm gonna obey. Now, second one was perspective. Perspective. He never forgot that God is in control and if God is in control, he's in control of who's in control. You saw that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Daniel starts out his, his autobiography with this thing. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the Lord delivered Jerusalem and the devoted things over to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and without that perspective of realizing, despite being confused by what's happening all around me, God is still on his throne, that changes everything about how you and I are able to respond. Because if we think he's too busy over here, we're gonna take things in our own hands over there. So we understood obedience. He had perspective. God is in control of who's in control, even when the wrong people seem to be in control for a short while. The third thing he had was this, endurance. He knew that his life and his impact and his ministry, if you will, uh, in, in the marketplace and the bureaucracy of, of, uh, of Babylon, he knew that it was a marathon, not a sprint. And that's why 70 years later, he was still going strong, you know? He was probably early 80s or 85, 86 by the time he wrote this. And, and, and at that point, uh, he is still one of the most powerful people in the entire nation. And in his endurance, he had made it through three kings. He had helped lead three movements of God in the place that was one of the most wicked that ever existed. He had endurance because it's really easy to give up when things get tough, isn't it? And that's what the Marines are trained. Like, no, you can do more than you thought. That's why God lets us go through some trials sometimes. And at the end of it, you go, wow, I didn't know I could make it through that. And the next time one is there, you're not quite as ready to quit as you were the first time. We get stronger and stronger. He also had confidence. Confidence. He knew how the story ends. He knew how the game ends. And because he knew God's in control of who's in control, and because he held on to the promises of God, when all hell was breaking loose around him, he didn't panic as if somehow he was gonna lose. You know, the Lord had revealed to him and Jeremiah and, and others that there was a season of time in which this discipline was going to be taking place. And so towards the end of his life, he's praying to the Lord, will you show me when it is that we are going to be restored? Now, what I want you to catch is the confidence behind that. Nothing from a human perspective would have told you that anything was ever gonna change, but he knew the promises of God. Have you ever been there in your life where God is giving you a promise, but ain't nothing looks like it's gonna fit that? And it was Daniel's confidence that, again, allowed him to keep the course because he knew how it was gonna end. I like to put it this way. If, if you know you're gonna win, then why do you care what the score is in the third quarter? Right? We can get so panicked by what's happening in the third quarter because we forget 
There's a scoreboard at the end of the game, and we've already been given a glimpse of it. And then the last thing that he had was courage, which flows out of all of these things. He did the right thing even when it looked like it would bring the wrong results, and that's what courage is. Courage isn't our modern-day bravado where we all talk big or, you know, we uh, do some virtue signaling on social media or whatever. Courage is when I step forward and whatever's going to happen, I'm willing to accept it, which if you happen to know the story of Daniel and you're, you're going to see some of his courage in a couple of weeks in one of the messages, was an incredible part of his life. But we don't have time to unpack all of those. So here's what I want to do in the rest of our time. I want to take the most important one of these and I want to unpack it. It's the one trait we need above all others, and especially when we find ourselves in a Babylon. And it's called obedience. And my bet is we all think we know what obedience is. Oh yeah, I know that phrase, but here's the thing. I'm not so sure we really understand what biblical obedience is. And so that's what I wanna do. I wanna step back and say, no, this is actually what the scripture says about this important thing called obedience without which all of the other traits end up falling apart. So, you ready to dig in? Here we go, five things that are part of biblical obedience uh, that in some ways can be a little different than our first thought of what that means. And the first one is this. When it comes to Jesus followers, obedience is the indispensable trait of a Jesus follower. It's the indispensable trait of a Jesus follower. Without it, I have no claim to be a Jesus follower. Now, I grew up in an environment in which I was told I am a Christian if I'll make a nod to God. There's some point in my life where I kind of think I want to follow God. If I will just pray this little prayer, I am in, and I can live like hell the rest of my life, and it doesn't really matter because I made a nod to God at one particular point. And, and the end result of that is I grew up thinking that obeying God was extra credit for those of us that were really into it, right? Does, can some of you identify with that? You know, like, well, I'm glad you're a Christian. It'd be nice if you followed Jesus. But, but here's, here's the problem. Knowing some facts and even believing them to be true about Jesus doesn't make me a Christian. If it did, demons are Christians, Right? Uh, James, uh, in his letter in the New Testament, says, even the, the demons believe. Now, help me out for a minute. My church talks back to me, so go ahead and talk back, okay? So, do the demons believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do they believe that he died and rose again? Well, you expect to have one next year throughout all eternity? I hope not, right? Believing some facts doesn't mean I'm acting on those facts, and that's what being a Jesus follower is. Um, praying and believing some facts about Jesus without actually following him and thinking that that makes me a Christian is as goofy as thinking that I'm a Marine because I went to the recruiter's office, filled out some paperwork, but never went to boot camp and never passed. I'm a recruit. I'm not a Marine. This might surprise you, but are you aware Jesus never said accept me, that common phrase? I've used it often. I'm not here to judge people who use it. Please don't do that. But Jesus never said, would you accept me? He always said, come and follow me. In fact, I want to show you just real briefly, pop some verses up 
Uh, how important this idea of following, not just a nod to God, is. The Great Commission, the assignment he gave the apostles, he's given to all of us that are followers of Jesus Christ to be a part of. Here's what it says, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples, Jesus' followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what are we to do? If they're really interested, teach them to obey. No. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. By the way, if I want to know whether or not I'm a Christian, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 7 puts it this way. And by this we know that we have come to actually know him. If... I prayed a prayer. If I went to camp as a third grader, if, no, if we keep his commandments. And whoever says, oh, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And here's the proof that I love Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 15, the words of Jesus himself. If you love me, you'll read your Bible a lot. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong Bible. Uh, if you'll love me, you'll cry during worship. Hmm. No, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. Very simple. Now, that could be bad news as some of you are hearing it right now because you were born with a guilt gene and all you can see right now is, man, I'm not obeying enough. I wanna move from that foundation now to the second principle, which is this. The good news, the obedience God wants from us is not perfection. The obedience God wants and uses and we can thrive in Babylon with is not just for Bible scholars who know the Bible inside out or type A disciplined people or those born with that giant guilt gene that do, you know, always think of the right thing. It's for regular folks like you and me. No matter how much or little we know and that's because this important principle about the obedience God blesses. Obedience starts with what we already know. That's what God's looking for. God's not looking at what you don't know and don't obey. God's looking at what you do know and whether you obey. It's really as simple as that. There's a principle called the dimmer switch principle in the Bible, and it goes like this. If I obey the light God has given me, he will give me more light. And if I disobey the light God has given me, he doesn't get a searchlight out, he turns down the light. Well, you don't want that? I'll give you less. Uh, and, and, and uh, in, in Proverbs, it's put this way. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, the rising of the sun, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now, I don't know if you know this, but your night vision is like your peripheral vision. There's no depth perception and no color. And so those of you who get up early in the morning, you kind of know as the sun starts to come up, you see things a little bit better, but you still don't all see them all that clearly. I, I remember as a young boy being at Yosemite, and if you've ever been there, one of the most beautiful places God has ever created, and there's a lot of little granite boulders around, and little seven-year-olds love to jump from one to the other, or whatever it would be. And I got up in the middle of the night from our, our tent and uh, was going to the bathroom, and there's a little rock there. It was maybe a half moon, so there's a little bit of light, and I step on it and kind of jump off. And then there's one about, I don't know, seven, eight feet in front of me, and I'm gonna go jump on it, and it moves. It was a bear cub, and I suddenly didn't have to go to the bathroom at all. <laughs> that was now done. Uh, scared to death. 
But here's the thing. Do you think that would have happened if it had been 1 p.m.? No, I would have seen it quite clearly. And the good news for all of us is, is the Lord is asking us to obey what we already know, and he's promising us if we will just start there, he will take care of giving us the rest of the stuff that we need to know. You know, Daniel didn't know that much of the Bible because it was a time of great spiritual darkness. That's why the nation was being uh, disciplined and Gutenberg hadn't come along so he didn't have a Bible by his nightstand or journal and write in. He only knew what he was taught and they weren't teaching much. He just knew a few of the basic rules and he kept them. And as he did that, God blessed him greatly. Now I wanna get real practical with this because here's an area where I think we miss this principle. And it's when we're searching for God's will, right? Y'all familiar with that? What is God's will? So I'm trying to figure out, what is God's will? Should I take this job or that job? What is God's will in terms of where I live? What is God's will? Should I marry this person or not marry this person? God, what is God's will and what major I should make? I mean, on and on, we'll, we'll ask in a small life group or whatever it is, hey, pray for us, we're trying to figure out what God wants. And then uh, the fact of the matter is, now listen closely, I want you to hear this whole thing, but we worry too much about finding God's will. God's will is not an Easter egg hunt for those who are persistent or smarter than the rest of us. God's will is really pretty crystal clear. And he doesn't care as much as we think about where we live or what apartment we get. He cares about how we live. You know, it was kind of goofy. I was a college career pastor for a while, and a lot of people would be praying, Lord, do you want me to marry this person or not in a serious dating relationship? And the whole issue was, wait a minute. You're not obeying him in terms of what you already know about how you're supposed to date. Why do you think he's gonna tell you whether or not to marry this person? If I'm not uh, 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 working like I'm supposed to work, why is he gonna tell me where to work? Uh, I like to illustrate it when my kids were young and we had them play in the backyard. I, you know, if they came up to me and said, oh, exalted wise father, what would you want us to play today? Tag, forts, baseball? I go, get out of here. Because the only rules are stay in the backyard, don't beat, e beat each other up, and don't throw hard things near the window. And then I don't really care. And we have so much more freedom than we think. And the irony is I think Satan sometimes gets us worrying about all of the little details here because as we worry about the details here, we ignore what we already know. You don't need to be worrying about what God's will is here. You need to be worried about the will of God you already know. And if we will obey that, he will reveal the rest. You don't have to worry, what if I get it wrong? I, I remember as young, well, what if I get it wrong on who I marry? Like everybody's got this assigned person. Well, his boundaries were marry a Christian, right? That was his boundaries for me as a Jesus follower. And I really had a lot more freedom than I thought. But I had this idea, if I get one little thing wrong, oh, my life's wrecked. I didn't realize if that's how it really works, well, then the whole universe is wrecked because I married the wrong person, right? The guy, poor guy is supposed to marry her. She was, I mean, like, down the rabbit hole, all because I didn't figure it out. It's so simple. It starts with what we already know. Now, here's the third important principle out of obedience we need to always understand, and that is God's commands won't always make sense. 
expect it. That's why it's called faith. <laughs> it wouldn't be faith if it made sense to me. It'd just be in agreement with him. If I have a God I can figure out, I don't have a real God. I've got a figment of my imagination, a homemade little idol. He's God and I'm not. Uh, Isaiah puts it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have any of you ever tried to explain to a four-year-old why they need to go to bed now? Or why they need to brush their teeth? Or you're out and there's lightning there and they say, what's that? That's lightning. Well, why is that? And then you start trying to explain lightning to them? I don't care what kind of scientist, teacher, communicator you are, they ain't gonna understand it, not because you're lame at your explanation, because they're four years old. And that's what I need to understand when it comes to God's obedience, that of course I can't understand always what he's telling me to do. Because the fact is, here's what you need to know about God's obedience, uh, or obeying God, and it's simply this, we can't figure out what he's up to through the front windshield. Very seldom will we have any, in fact, most of the time where I go, oh, I know how God's gonna work this out. Six months later, that's not at all what happened. You've been there, done that, right? I, through the front windshield, it's hard to figure out what God is up to, even through the side windows. But man, when I look through the rearview mirror, so much becomes clear. I used to think that if I obeyed God, I need to understand why and what he was up to. And, and, and No, I just need to do what he says even when it seems to make no sense and he's clearly said to do it. And it won't make any sense until I say it in the rearview mirror. And I go, of course. Later on this week, you might want to read the story in Acts chapter 16. I think it's on your note sheet, the verses 6 to 10, where even the apostle Paul, this stinking apostle Paul, couldn't figure out what God was up to. I find such comfort in that. So here's the story in Acts chapter 16. Uh, 14 years earlier, he and a guy named Barnabas had gone and planted a bunch of churches. And now they felt like the Lord was clearly calling them to go and uh, visit all those churches and encourage them. So he gets everything all ready. He prints up all those little magnets and prayer things for everybody's refrigerator. He gets a website, you know, a little domain name. He's got it all figured out where they're going and what's gonna happen so everybody can pray for him. And then he discovers that Barnabas wants to take a guy named John Mark with him who had deserted them 14 years later and Paul's gonna have none of that. And next thing you know, like he and Barnabas are not doing it anymore because Barnabas insists on taking John Mark. Little sidebar, Barnabas was right and Paul was wrong. His scriptures are without error, but his life wasn't without error any more than yours and mine. How do I know that? Because God let John Mark write the gospel of Mark. And I don't know about you, but if you're qualified by God to write Bible, you probably are qualified to go on my mission trip. I don't know, that's kind of how I would think. So, now I'm gonna just read this to you as we pick up the story. They went through the region of Phygia and Galatia, having been forbidden, which means they tried to go there, but they were forbidden from going there by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. There go the magnets. There goes everything he printed up, and he thought, this is Paul. God closes the door when he thought God had opened it. 
And then it says, when they came to Mijah, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Oh, we know what God's will is. They thought that's where Jesus wanted them to go, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Maja, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come on over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, well, maybe that's where God wants us to go. They had no idea if it was a pizza they ate last night or God, but what the heck, nothing else is working out. So they head out there. And when he gets there, they go to a place called Philippi. He gets the daylights beaten out of him. He's thrown into prison, has to leave, run for his life. So then he goes down to a place called Thessalonica. He's there two weeks, and he gets, has to leave it, run for his life. Can you imagine what that experience was now? He had like, what in the world? God, where are you? But in the rearview mirror, we get three books of the Bible. Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And he gets his number one funding source, the church in Philippi, which is the book of Philippians is his thank you letter for all of their financial support. I don't know about you, but when it comes to trying to figure out what God wants for me, I find a lot of comfort. If Paul couldn't figure it out, it's not so bad Larry can't figure it out. I just want to keep moving with what is clear to me. And when he shuts the door, it's like, well, whatever. Okay, I'll try this door. Because he is God and I am not. I'm that little four-year-old. If he tried to tell me it all up in front, I'd go, you've been there with him, right? Why? 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 <laughs> About 40, whys? And then you just give up and go, so go ask your mom. You know? <laughs> Here's the fourth thing we need to understand about obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Again, don't worry about what you don't know. Worry about what you do know, but partial obedience is disobedience. You ever tell your kids to clean up their room and they say, yeah, it's all clean, and you go in there and you go, wow, we have different dictionaries, right? I call it the mostlies. Satan loves us to live in the mostlies, where I think that mostly obeying is good enough because I obeyed better than a lot of people I know. So I mostly boarded up the windows before the hurricane came. I mostly cleaned up the trash. I mostly forgive. Well, except for that one person for that one thing. You know, I mostly return good for evil. Well, except for. I'm, I'm mostly honest, but wait a minute. You don't know my employment field. And I'm mostly sexually pure. Well, except for this one special relationship and these unique circumstances. See, mostly they'll get us. And mostly doing what God says and complaining about the results is like mostly following the instructions and then complaining because whatever it is we're putting together didn't work. A few years ago, I bought a Traeger and uh, I tend to, you know, look at not only the ratings, but all the questions on Amazon, you know, for something. And so I'm reading all that kind of stuff. And, and, and in there were a bunch of people who gave it really bad reviews. And I remember a couple of them stood out to me because they said, I would never buy these. Please don't buy it. It almost burnt down my house. Like, I'm what? And then I realized they'd never read the instructions and they never cleaned out the grease trap. 
And after a year of use, they're all upset and writing a bad review because they never cleaned out the grease trap because they never took the time to figure out what the instructions were. They mostly followed it. They did some great brisket. But they nearly burned down their house. But the problem was theirs. The problem was not the trigger. The problem with partial obedience is it treats God as my consultant and wise counsel, but I'm still the king. And here's the biggest problem. God doesn't do consulting. <laughs> he does God. And so when I walk up to a play and look around, if I'm a football quarterback and the coach is sitting in a play and I'm supposed to run on this side and there's 10 of the 11 defenders over here, I call a thing called an audible. And we go over here. Go to the house, get a touchdown. Sometimes I think I can call audibles on God. You've been there? I walk up and I know the play that he sent in, but there's 10 defenders over here. So I call my audible. And here's the thing. The coach might send in a bad play. God never does. He knows there's 10 defenders over there. And running most of his plays, but calling an occasional audible will never win the game. It'll only get me yanked out of the game. And here's the fifth one. Obedience is the path out of every trial. That's why it's indispensable. It's a path out of every trial. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, 13, a neat promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability, but with the temptation, here's the key, circle, highlight, underline, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what the way of escape out of every mess is? The path of obedience. And here's what I want to leave you with. It's not just the messes we find because God's God is in spiritual boot camp. It's not just the messes we're in because we live in a fallen world. It's also the messes we're in because they're of our own making. Be they massive or be they small, we all find ourselves where we call them audible. And we all find ourselves in a hole of our own making. And there's always a way to dig out of it. I don't care how deep your hole is today. I don't care how messy the mess is today. There's a way out. You see, God doesn't do cancel culture. We do, but God doesn't. God does restoration. God does redemption, buying back. And what he calls us to do, he says, if you've made a mess of it, here's what you do. You turn around, fancy biblical word, repent. It just means turn around. And you start running my plays if you want me to bless your play. And there's a way out every single time. And as we close, I hope all of us have got a little better sense of what it means to obey. For some of you, a little bit of release, like, oh man, he's not up there just looking for every little mistake I make. And for others of us that are living in the mostly to realize that's why it's not working out so well. 
but I know there's some of you here today, it's not only not working out so well, it's working out horrific. And you know in your heart of hearts, you've not made that turnaround to step over that line and give it over to Jesus and quit audibleizing and run his play. And if you're ready to make that change, would you just pray a little prayer with me? Because that's what it begins with. The prayer's not the point at which you become a Jesus follower, but it's the point at which we start the journey of following him out of that mess. Father, I would pray for all of us here today that we'd have a better understanding of what it means to follow you, whether we're just beginning or whether today is that first step. But for those of you with our heads bowed and eyes closed that are ready to take that first step, I want to encourage you to just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, here's the steering wheel of my life. I'm through running my place, and I'm going to follow you. Would you show me the next step? And I promise I'll take it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. God bless.